Hi there, or Sawadika, which is hello in Thai. You're listening to the Thai Girl for God radio show on the Paratruth Radio Network. What I do is interview fascinating and interesting guests who talk about their expertise from a Christian perspective. I hope you enjoy the show, and may God bless you. Welcome to the Thai Girl for God radio show under the Paratruth Radio Network. Tonight I have an extra special guest named Dr. Joy Jeffries Pugh, and she's an alumna of South Georgia College, Valdosta State College, and Nova University, where she received her doctorate in education. Her background involves working as a researcher, counselor, mental retardation professional, human services director, and consultant. Dr. Joy's complete biographical history is featured in Who's Who in the World, Who's Who in America, Who's Who in American Women, Who's Who in the South and Southwest, Who's Who in American Education, and Who's Who in Georgia. Joy is a member of the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution. She's a descendant of Dr. John Taliaferro, a Minuteman who fought during the American Revolution. Dr. Joy is the daughter of the late Stella and C.B. Jeffries III. She is married to Melville Eugene Pugh. In addition, Dr. Joy Jeffries Pugh's past books, Eden, the Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666, and Antichrist, the Cloned Image of Jesus Christ, have both been eschatology, prophecy, and theology bestsellers. And she and her research have been featured on the History Channel and many national and international radio shows. Dr. Joy is a recording artist, writing and composing her own songs with an album entitled Before Time Stops. She is featured in Who's Who in the World and a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Dr. Joy received her doctorate from Nova University, her master's and bachelor's degrees from Valdosta State College, and her associate from South Georgia College. Her research interests include ancient history, archaeology, astronomy, physics, Bible prophecy, secret societies, paganism, demonology, biotechnology, the human pineal gland, nanotechnology, cloning, modified food, vaccinations, Ebola, Marburg, and other hot viruses, as well as government control through surveillance and harmonic resonance, unexplained phenomena like UFOs, animal mutilations, crop circles, strange weather patterns, plagues, and electromagnetic anomalies, world religions, the Vatican, theology, and my favorite subject, the Holy Shroud of Turin. Welcome, Dr. Joy. I appreciate that you're on my show tonight. Oh, I'm looking so forward to being your guest, and I enjoy talking about these particular things that you've mentioned uh, in my research, and I look forward to sharing the research that I have done for so many years with your listeners. Amen. Praise God. Well, I'm so glad that uh, you had reached out to me. Uh, I know that uh, there was a, a period of time um, where uh, you had to put all shows on hold. So I'm so glad that, that you emailed me out of the blue. And, and it was definitely an answer to prayer that uh, God would, would draw the right guests and everything. And uh, you're an extra special guest. I'm very honored and privileged to have you on board. Very much so. Well, out of all of these different subjects, um, the most fascinating subject that, like you said, could encompass an entire show and, and a half, or maybe two shows, would be the Holy Shroud of Turin, which is the purported burial cloth of Jesus Christ, as well as cloning. Those two subjects 
could, you could probably talk hours on end about because I know that you had written uh, those fascinating books, two of which I have, uh, which are Beguiled, Eden to Armageddon, uh, Volume 1 and 2, and I'll be downloading three pretty soon. And I read part of uh, 1 and 2, but uh, not the whole thing. I'm kind of a slow reader sometimes, but I'm looking forward to reading um, all of your books. Um, especially uh, the Beguiled series. So, as a matter of fact, I have that on my little uh, list of books that I've, I'm reading on my Facebook so people know. <laughs> Hopefully, they will we'll have checked it out since it's on my Facebook. So, Dr. Joy, um, do you mind if you open in a word of prayer? Sure. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful time to spend tonight to discuss some things that I feel like that you really want people to know about, that you've given us the ability to share these things openly and to give truth to people who are looking and just desiring to know your truth. And we just thank you so much for the listeners who have come to this show, for Jerry Lynn, for her willingness to do a show like this, Father. And I thank you for the knowledge that you've given me to be able to share. And I just ask your blessings upon each of the people that will be listening and who will continue to listen to the show, as well as to Jerry Lynn and all that she's doing to try to bring your word to the people that are really searching out there. We just thank you this night, and we just ask your blessings and your healings and everything that is that is you. We just thank you this night in your mighty, precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that awesome prayer, Dr. Joy. All right, Dr. Joy, you had an interesting dream when you were six years old. What was that dream, and how did it impact your life? Well, you know, I don't want to go into a really long thing, because that could take us a whole show, show to sure. discuss, but... <laughs> But it was about the end of days when I was six years old that I went to sleep one night and really had a dream that I really believe that I saw the end of days. And it was such a emotional event and one where I really felt like that I saw Jesus and that I saw the very end of time when things had been destructed. I mean, total destruction had occurred after the Battle of Armageddon. So uh, that led me on a journey to start doing research at a very early age when I could not find people who could really tell me what had happened in that dream. And I eventually, not that night, but I did go get my grandmother wake her up and really did want to go into the church and really get saved and and, and, and just really know that I was going to be okay during that time because I knew the seriousness of it. But as a child, you know, at that age, most people would say, well, you need to wait till you get older. And, and they always believe that the age of accountability growing up in a little Southern Baptist church was around 12 years of age. So, of course, uh, my grandmother was a Sunday school teacher, and she tried to encourage me to just enjoy being a child. But I will honestly say that I knew then that there was something very significant that was going to happen in my life, never dreaming how much I can look back now and see really how that played a major role in where I am and what I have studied and, and why I'm even on your show tonight. So at 11 years of age, I did finally join the church uh, during a revival, and I was baptized in a pond. So I, I was... Uh, privileged to be able to kind of experience what it's like to be baptized outside in open water. It was a very uh, marvelous moment, one of those that you, you cry with, uh, you know, tears that are, um, even as a child, you know, something very unique has happened to you. And, of course, I went on through my uh, younger years to uh, study these things, uh, from Revelation, the book of Revelation, starting at 13, and, and of course, uh, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and then going on into high school and, and studying and really uh, doing a lot of prose under James Weldon Johnson. Uh, I would go and I would recite his, his prose, which was what he did as far as preaching. He preached in prose, and so I would memorize his prose. 
and then I would deliver those as talents and as well as, um, you know, church-related services. And, of course, that was during a time when there were very few women, if any, who stood in a pulpit in those days. So you can imagine what that was like when I stood up in a pulpit to deliver a sermon, <laughs> even, sure. even though it was in prose. <laughs> you know, that was kind of an unusual sight. Uh-huh. So uh, I went on to college, and, and again, I began studying the things that you would typically study uh, as a woman during that time because most, like I say, women were not considered to be pastors. Uh, and so I I put that kind of on the my internal desires and um, and really focused on uh, my first couple of years were studying to be an attorney. And then I decided I wanted to be a counselor and work with, uh, you know, mentally challenged individuals. And then from that point on, I decided to work on my doctorate. And, of course, I got my doctorate in education administration. So uh, I went in an area that I really did love and wanted to help and work with people and, and, and be a good advocate for whether a person was uh, mentally challenged at a very low level or if where they were really geniuses and were not being, you know, treated right or given the right opportunities. But at the same time, all this that was happening to me internally and wanting to know about the end of days was still going on. And so my library was getting bigger and bigger, and I was trying to find every book that I could to answer my own question. And so my library became answers to my questions, and then I continued to help other people in the aspects of the fields of study that I had done. But during uh, my master's degree and also in my doctorate degree, I had two professors who allowed me to write about these things, and they I started off writing about uh, beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega, and the connection to light and how light in its purest forms could have some significant bearings on us as human beings. Never dreaming that mm-hmm. years later, you know, I'd be able to say, okay, here's the scientific proof of the things that can happen if you have pure light. And um, I think one of the most revealing things was uh, when I was probably just right into high school and right into the first years of college. Uh, that my dad was a historian and was a great reader, and he would challenge my mind. He always wanted me to make top in the class. In other words, if it was, if you could make 105 points on a test, he expected me to come home with 105 points. Uh, <laughs> he didn't think anything was, you know, was less. In other words, you needed to to be smart and you needed to know what you were talking about, and you needed to find the truth in what you were reading and that kind of stuff. He he believed in that. And he was very militaristic in in the fact that he liked for you to achieve. And so it was not only achieving in athletics. Expect the same thing from from my years uh, in athletics and music and whatever else. It was supposed you were supposed to be the best at it. So I was raised to to look truthfully at a lot of things. And of course, I had like I say two grandmothers who were Sunday school teachers, and one played the piano. For church, and then I had a, a grandfather who was a, a deacon in a church. Of course, he passed away before I was born. But the the knowledge of knowing, you know, that your family has been uh, brought together by the teaching of the Bible, it laid a foundation at a very early age because my grandmother carried me to church to the same church that I'm still a member of within the uh-huh. week that I was born. So, you know, I, I grew up under. Uh, understanding of what was going on biblically, but at the same time, I uh, had this desire to always know, I want to know the truth about everything. And so when these questions that I would have and pop these pop quizzes <laughs> to my teachers and they couldn't answer the question when I was in Sunday school or at 
you know, in in uh, in regular school, then I wanted to know, you know, what are the answers. And so that's what my research is all about. It, it's about finding the answers to these really tough questions that most people have sidestepped and said, well, it's not time for us to know or, or whatever. And so when my dad brought in a picture of um, uh, the Shroud of Turin, which had to be in the early 1970s, uh, and I want to say it was sometime either between the time that I was uh, in high school and going into college or right before I went into college. And I cannot remember the book that it was, but it was a magazine, and, and I'm just guessing that it could have been a look or a life magazine because those were the big magazines at the time um, that people, you know, read a lot back in those days. But it had a picture of the Shroud of Turin, and never forget he brought it in to me, and uh, he says, you ever seen anything like this? And when he turned it around for me to look at it, I just kind of really bust out crying because I'm like, oh, my gracious, I've seen that man before. And then all of a sudden, I'm uh-huh. like, that looks like the man that I believed was Jesus when I was six years old in my dream. Wow. So immediately, you know, I had this this feeling that that cloth was real. I, I never had a doubt in my mind that that cloth could be a forgery or somebody's painting or somebody's you know, fake to the world or a hoax, I always felt like it was real. And, of course, during those first years in which the Sprout of Turin was majorly put through scientific, um, you know, study under the Stirrup Committee back even in the 60s and then 70s, those men that went in to do the scientific study of that shroud literally, I think, proved at that point in time that the man on the cloth was indeed a crucified man that had gone through the the um, the process of crucifixion, which is a terrible, uh, it is, is, is probably the most terrible way to ever die. And, right. you know, they, they brought in people who did forensics and things that would tell you, like, if you were murdered or whatever, how severe it was, because they can tell by, the way that you were hit or uh, or attacked or abused, how your blood would flow, how the skin torn out of the body would look. Uh, And then on top of that, the interesting thing to me was that um, that they were saying that this blood was, in fact, uh, a Jewish man's blood. So they had typecast the blood at that time. And then at the same time, they had done some DNA studies. And so they had kind of cloned a little bit. And um, they were able to tell a little bit about the fact that this was a man. It was a male. It had a, you know, the uh, the fact that it was Jewish related, and and those kinds of things were already being documented as truth and fact back in those days. And like I say, I immediately felt, and still have always felt, even through all the stuff that the shroud has been through that there are some people who just want to prove that it's not real because the moment you have to accept that that cloth is real, it means there is eternal life. It means that Jesus Christ did live, walk this earth, die, and resurrect, and that the Bible is really telling you what happened. So if you, you know, it's telling you this is what happened, you can figure everything else that's in there is going to happen as well. So there's a lot of anxiety you know, in in the process of bringing these things to the table as fact, no different than, you know, trying to prove that Noah's Ark is uh, on Mount Ariat and that pieces of wood that have been found are, in fact, from that particular ark. Because what it does is it proves historically that these things have happened. So, you know, when I first started to sit down to um, 
to put a book together, and of course it was under great duress. My mother had been uh, diagnosed with cancer. I had to give up my work, and I was taking her back and forth and doing my research on uh, all these things that I was quite interested in when I felt like God called me to write that first book. And in doing that, uh, I went up to my library, started pulling the books off the shelf because I had had a uh, long prayer, and, and, and God, I felt like, spoke to me and told me it was time to write the book, and had told me who to send the book to to have that first manuscript uh, published, and it was called Antichrist, the Clone Image of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about, this is before the year 2000. We're talking about like 1998, 1999 uh-huh. when I was doing this. And, of course, we didn't have the uh, World Wide Web or anything like that. So everything that I had accessible, accessible to me were where I had gone and done this research over the course of time. And then I would do the research while my mother was taking chemo most of the day. It would take sometimes six, seven, eight hours. And I would sit there and read the whole time because I would stay with her. And um, and so when I felt that God had called me to do this, I just went up to my library, started pulling the books off the, the shelf, and I had all the books in my library for my first book. I mean, I had read every one from start to finish. I didn't skip around in a book. I read the book. I start at page one and go to the end of the pages, all into the bibliography, because I double-check my bibliography so the people, the books that I read, I really want to know that they've done their research so that when I base my research on somebody else's research that I can be assured it's not a hoax or that they have missed the mark. And um, that just comes from being a researcher. That's what you're taught when you go to school, when you have to defend your uh, dissertations and stuff. You will, you will lose out real quick uh, when you work on your doctorate if you don't have every I dotted and every T crossed appropriately. So that's the way I, I went out about my research. And another thing is because I had my undergraduate, my associate degree was in pre-law, you know, my intention was to be an attorney, so, you know, I'm looking for every little mess up in everything that I'm looking for, uh, you know, so I'm looking at it with eyes that if I had to carry this before a jury and I had to present a case to you, I want it to be just shut down. There's nothing that you can come up with that, that would say, well, it could be this or it could be that. I want to show you that it's a tried, true fact in everything that I'm bringing to the table, so when I would look at this uh, for myself because at that point in time, before I started writing the book, I was trying to prove these things to myself and was not wanting to hoax myself about whether the Stratus Wren was really a fake or not. I wanted to know the truth about it and what was out there. Sure. And so when I started doing that and uh, started putting that book together, then I began to see that there was a lot of things that were very important because, you know, if you stop and think about it, Jesus Christ is the only human that was ever born, really since Adam and Eve's creation, who was created, really, without same, really sin-tainted blood. And if you, you know, if you look through the Bible, there's this right. unique little pattern that says that you should not ever mix, that things have to remain pure, and that it if you go through even to the book of Revelation, it starts talking about, you know, no mixing, whoredom, adultery, all this kind of things. And it didn't make sense to me that Revelations would be talking about those things. But where did that begin? You know, it didn't start in the book of Revelation. And that made me, it forced me to go back to the garden because what it is is that we have we were born in the garden, but yet we were taken out of the garden, and then we're going kind of back to the garden or back to paradise. So the 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 terrible serpent that was in uh, Revelation that I kept reading about, it kept saying it's the old serpent that was there in the beginning. So to get the basis of understanding that, you had to go back to the garden and get the premises of why is it that the Bible is always telling us in Jesus' situation, his entire 
history, his lineage. I mean, it gives you every name. You know, why is it so important that the Bible show us this is the father so-and-so, and and that's the father so-and-so, and and this is son of so-and-so? I mean, you know, when I first read the Bible, I would be like, oh, that is so, I'm so tired of reading that. Well, who cares? (laughs) That (laughs) so-and-so is a father and son, and now I know the significance is very important, and that is why it's there, is to show you the pureness that Jesus was so that he could literally go to the the cross as the pure lamb and his blood could be really slain there uh, and not have any sin. And that was the only way to overcome death and to ever allow us to claim it for, you know, for our uh, salvation to get us back to the garden because humanity was literally taken in by the serpent and has been manipulated and, and mistreated and beguiled. And that's one of the reasons I named my book Beguiled, because it's been going on since the Garden of Eden. So I really spent a lot of time trying to explain to people that the blood running through Jesus' veins is pure and holy. It is totally divine. And divine is a very important thing, because even in the Holy Bible, the scriptures call him a holy one, and it's the only time in Scripture that that word is ever used to describe something. You know, we know we're told that he was made a little lower than the angels, but at the same time that he was a holy one, that there was something very unique and different from you know from him, because really mankind eternal damnation was just set up. Jesus did not have any sin, so he's totally, totally unique. And so these are the things that I wanted to kind of start my my beguile research off with so that you could get a complete understanding of the difference between corruption, incorruption, mixed, pure, uh, virgin, adultery, whoredom. You know, I wanted to show that these things were very important and they were a thread that ran all the way from Genesis to Armageddon. And when, you know, people would say, oh, well, this, this shroud's just not mentioned in the Bible. And I'm like, yes, all four Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have about Jesus being buried in linen cloth. And that mm-hmm. when they went to the tomb that they found in that tomb, his, his disciples found that there, this linen cloth were there along with a face napkin. And it, they explained to you that when Jesus was wrapped, he was wrapped like an envelope. In other words, and, and if you look at it and just take an envelope, it's a rectangular container, and that is just exactly how the linen shroud was wrapped around Jesus. It was laid over him. It wasn't stripped around like sometimes you see them do that kind of thing because he had been taken down on the cross and the, the Sabbath was coming up. So there were certain things that had to be done uh, quickly to get him where he needed to be. So the fact that they were able right. to to do some certain things to him, to, you know, to use some um, different kinds of uh, things on the cloth, uh, whether it be uh, spices and, and that kind of stuff. But they were trying their best to get this stuff done so that they could come back after the Sabbath and kind of finish up. And so when I looked at that and I saw that, um, you know, that all these things were on the shroud, and, and really looking at it, well, what does it, what does this really, really mean for us? Then you can, you get the understanding that this, this cloth was real. It was there. The gospels mention it. And, uh, apparently when they came to the tomb, uh, and the, and the stone was rolled away, those cloths were there. So it was like they saw, they had to have seen the cloth empty. 
And in my opinion, uh, the, the cloth being like that and to see them, they knew that he was dead, he was in those cloths, that he had just not gotten up and, and, and walked out of there because they, uh, you know, they immediately thought somebody had stole the body. They knew that he was literally dead. Uh, and then when, like I say, you, you think about what that linen, linen cloth was and I, and I explained why the linen cloth was used because it's a pure cloth and in, in linen you don't have any other uh, material mixed in with it. That's one thing that, um, the uh-huh. true linen cloths were done. You can't have like a mixture of wool or cotton or anything like that. That has to be a true linen. And so, um, if you stop and you look at the Holy Shroud of Turin, uh, there was a time that that particular cloth had gone through a fire and it had some, um, singeness and some water stains and there were some nuns that did repair the cloth around the edges of it. And, and so when you look at the cloth, you can still see the water stains, uh, from that and how, uh, that cloth survived a very, a very tragic situation. And amazingly, it's still here for us to look at. But I think the fact that, uh, that you can look at the cloth and see really anatomically the true effects that, you know, that a person through crucifixion has gone through. And of course, we can look at historical records of crucifixion, you know, that have survived. Uh, it's not like we're just having to listen to what the Bible says about crucifixion. I mean, we have historical records about what crucifixion was all about. So when you look at this crucifixion of this man's body, uh, the, the shroud itself shows him to be about six foot two inches tall and probably weighing somewhere around 178 pounds. Uh, and he, of course he has a beard and shoulder length hair and, um, you know, all the little things that are on him are really forensic evidence that he was tremendously and severely beaten by the very things that Scripture tells us happened, and that is that he got nail scars on his wrists and his feet. And uh, it's interesting because it's not really through the hands like they uh, typically have always tried to show sometimes right. on TV shows because you, your hand would just strip out. If you've ever caught your hand on something and pull through, you have nothing to hang with. But where they placed it, that's where it is on the on, on the shroud as well in the correct place. And then you have the uh, thorn scars that are on the head and face. And then, of course, you have where it looks like the pieces of the beard have been pulled and the scars and lacerations, of course, across his back where he received those um, stripes, of, uh, you know, from these uh, these, these claw-like uh, things that they would hit you with. And it, when, when they would hit you, this, this claw kind of thing would dig into the flesh and then they would pull it, the Roman soldiers would pull it, and it would literally pull the flesh off of you. I, I just can't imagine what that would feel like. I, mean, I think about a cat. Right. I have a cat as a you know, as a pet, and when he grabs a hold of me, and if I try to pull my hand away and his claws are hung in me, and you know how it just rips your skin, that is so painful just for a, it is. a little tiny cat. So you can imagine what that was like uh, with him sure. laying across something and them hitting him and literally stripping the 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 pure skin off of him. And mm-hmm. and the shroud and the shows us that's exactly, you know, exactly is what had happened. So, you know, you cannot deny that the, the shroud, uh, the front body figure that's on there and the back of the body, which is very interesting because it was wrapped around him, so you get a frontal and you get a back of the same individual. Uh, and, and to be able to paint something like that with a, where you could have it so symmetrical that you could paint the back and match the front and all those kinds of things, 
you know, there have been so many people who wanted to put uh, Da Vinci as the painter of that and that, you know, he had alchemical capability of doing painting. But you can look at painting. When you look at painting, you can't really do a body like that. And, of course, the more I research the shroud, I come to find that, that a lot of people don't realize that the shroud is the most researched relic in all of human history. There has been a lot of research that has been done on it. And, and so, you know, when you look at this and you see that uh, the science that, of the people that went there, they were not people who were nobodies. We're talking about some of the, the best scientists that were brought in to do nothing but look at the blood and look at, uh, you know, how the forensic evidence and to look at whatever they could find on that shroud and to review it and try to figure out exactly how it that image, you know, came to be. So, and looking at all that, um, you, you just cannot deny that if you've got, a, a, you know, a group, and of course the Sturp group was called the Shroud of Turin Research Product. I call it Sturp. It's S-T-U-R-P, and it's usually put in, mm-hmm. in, in all capital letters, but it stood for the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And like I say, when they were, uh, you know, allowed by the Vatican to review that cloth, it was given so many hours and so many days that they could really be in there to do their work. And, I mean, they went at it full force, uh, hardly sleeping, trying to get the time in there with it. And, of course, the Strat of Turin became the the cloth that the Vatican owned because when King Umberto of Italy, it was bequeathed to him, he bequeathed it on to um, the Pope. And and that's how it ended up in uh, St. John's Basilica there in Turin, you know, with the Vatican overseeing it. But before that period of time, it was considered uh, the cloth of Odessa, and it was moved uh, not too long after Jesus was crucified. And many believe that Joseph of Arimathea, who's uh, who really had the tomb where Jesus was laid, probably took it there to the cloth, took it to Odessa, and they were trying to hide it there in the walls because during the uh, crusades and stuff there was a lot of stealing of things and that kind of net, you know magnitude going on and they were probably trying to protect it from anyone stealing it or taking it because at that time they were pillaging everything trying to get anything like pieces of the cross and pieces of the sword and just all kinds of things that pierced Jesus' side. But the cloth of Edessa was moved by the Knights Templar all through history and I traced all that uh, lineage from the time of crucifixion into uh, Edessa and the cloth of Edessa and then how it was moved by the Knights of Templar and how it, you know, changed hands through the different uh, Templars and their families of, of royalty. And at times, we have historical uh, reference, not through the Bible, but through other historical books where that cloth was brought out and it was viewed and it was showed to people. You know, it was paraded through streets sometimes. So it was, it was telling all in the very beginning, this is a true cloth that it, nobody ever thought it was uh, fake. And, of course, there were people who said in, in historical record about seeing this face and being healed and, and that kind of stuff that was going on that we can look into other uh, books and find. And so I try to bring uh-huh. uh, that into my research to show that this is not something that was ever considered a, a hoax or a fake, that from the very uh, beginning when it was put there as a cloth of a death, it was believed to be the 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 face and body of Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, that those are the things that you, you have to stop and say, uh, if you can trace it back like I, I did, 
that I have the the way that it's moved through history to prove that it was not something that started back in the days of the Bensi. Because, we, you know, I'm carrying you all the way back to the day the 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified. And mm-hmm. then the fact that when the Sturp Committee actually did their analysis uh, of this back in the 70s and early 60s, the blood residue from, that was removed actually tested positive for several things that are found in our blood, like bilirubin, which is, of course, a bile pigment, and it, uh-huh. it comes out when you go through extreme trauma. So when you talk about somebody trying to do a painting like that, you would have to put somebody through major trauma to get their blood with bilirubin like that pigment and then have, uh, you know, ability to take uh, the blood, blood products under extreme trauma. And, and it couldn't be like you just did a little something. It would have to be extreme trauma to, to have it show up like it does on the shroud. And then the other thing is that at the rib cages, like six rib, where we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus was pierced, that these same shroud scientists also found that the blood uh, in a clear liquid called pericardial fluid was actually, you know, which uh-huh. comes out of your, this actually comes out of the pleural cavity from the pleural sac that's around the heart. But, you know, that particular stuff is right there on the shroud. Okay, well, you know, that would mean that if you were faking that, you'd have to take somebody and you'd have to pierce them like that under extreme conditions and you'd have to get the pericardial fluid that would be like that. So, you know, the more that you right. look at what's on that shroud, you can't go like, well, this was just somebody's fun time painting. And they tried so hard a couple, you know, years back to really try to say that the the blood was really not blood and that it was like an iron product and that it was, you know, a painting and that kind of stuff. But really, um, Carolyn, that that was just to try to keep sure. people from knowing that this uh, blood on the shroud is very, very real and that there's something very interesting about it. And, you know, as we have been able to look at the scientific capabilities that we now have um, uh, through science, we have also identified that there's limestone that's found actually on the imprint of the feet that is, it, it, that is actually known to match that in Jerusalem tombs during the time that Christ was living. And then the pollen that was removed from the shroud is also native to the Jerusalem area. And, you know, I think that another thing that was very interesting to me, that there was saliva and tears that were also isolated for a study. And then, of course, um, the fact that the blood itself was uh, was there. And I think that the the thing that really um, should get in people's minds is that there was a face napkin that was also there. And it's told in, in Scripture the face napkin was there. The face napkin was something they put on the face uh, at death. But the blood, where the, it is on the face uh, napkin, matches the same spots as the blood on the shroud. Well, it's interesting. The the face napkin ended up in Avita, Spain. And it's been there. Uh, it's called the Sidarian Cloth. And it's been there since about 500 uh, years after the crucifixion that it's known to have existed there. So then that proves that if that cloth was there within 500 years after the crucifixion, that there's no way that the Vinci or those people would even have been alive, you see, to have done anything. And so when you take that Sidarian cloth and you lay it over where the blood is on the Shroud of Turin, it matches it perfectly. We're not talking about off or anything. It matches it perfectly. On top of that, the blood that's on 
the Sidereian cloth and on the shroud are identical. So they both are showing that there is large amounts of someone who had gone through extreme trauma. Uh, the blood type is the same. All, all those things are, are the same. In fact, that cloth also has the same pollen uh, from the area in Jerusalem. And I think that, that most interesting is there's a plant that they say that grows within like 50-mile radius of Jerusalem, which is kind of like a little flower and thorn plant. But, you know, that's where the crown of thorns came from. And we know that in Scripture that those, you know, soldiers, that they plaited those crown of thorns and slammed it down on his head. Well, it's interesting, on both of those, the napkin and the shroud, there is pollen from that particular thorn plant. Now, how significant could that be? I mean, you know, if you were living and you wanted to paint this and you're in the Middle Ages, how would you go and get the thorn plant? I mean, you just can't deny that there's something more to this than somebody trying to play a hoaxing game because it's too many things that point to the fact that it's a real person with human DNA that we know uh, did something spectacular. And that is that today we still cannot figure out how that cloth originated itself because Everybody that's tried to fake it or hoax it or try to come up with one, nobody has ever been with all the computer capabilities we have ever be able to produce something that looks like the Shroud of Turin. And I think the other thing is uh, the fact that the human DNA that was removed, you know, in the blood samples are very significant. And I think that was the thing that was interesting to me. But on top of that, um, the fact that the – that for some reason somebody wants to keep this quiet and doesn't want anybody to know the real truth about it, is when in 1988 they came up, you know, after they started seeing that what they'd already said about it being a painting wasn't going to fly. In other words, there was too much science coming out that you can't, Uh like I just said, you can't deny that all these things have happened to that particular piece of cloth. So they thought, well, let's cut a piece of cloth off of there and let's just carbon date it. Well, the interesting thing is, and it just blows my mind, that the people who were doing the cutting of the cloth knew that that cloth had gone through that fire and that those nuns had done a special thing around that cloth to secure that cloth to keep it from, you know, ragging away from itself and that kind of stuff. They knew where that cloth had been repaired. But yet, for some reason in 1988, they allowed the carbon dating to be done from an area that they knew had been stitched up and redone. Now, that I'm like, okay, ding, ding, ding. Why would you allow something that you right. know already was not correct? Okay, well, they did that. They took the samples. They, they sent them to, like, three different places to have it reviewed. And uh, at first they were going to send it to several different places for the carbon dating. Uh, but they ended up, I believe, if I off the top of my head, I think it was Tucson, Arizona, Zurich, Switzerland, and Oxford in England, I think were the three that places that they actually sent the parts of the cloth to look at them. And that was to really determine, you know, what, how old was the cloth, and that would, you know, either tell them it was the time of Christ or it was not. Well, of all people, when I did the research and found out that the British Museum officials were those that were chosen to oversee which samples were cut from that cloth for that carbon-14 test. I'm like, now what is Britain playing a role in taking stuff off of this cloth? It belongs to the Vatican. Why wasn't the Vatican? What, what was, why would the British Museum be involved 
in a shroud like that. Mm. Well, it makes a lot of sense once you do the research that I've done because you find out why they were doing and why they're wanting to keep this a little bit more quiet for a little bit longer than they want to. But what happened was when they pulled um, this carbon dating, the dating stuff on that, uh, it 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 told them that they, you know, that the that the shroud was like a medieval, you know, it was back medieval days. Well, what they didn't know is that when they cut the cloth, there was other pieces of that cloth sample that some people got their hands on, and uh, that was during that time, the same time that piece was cut, and they just happened to give it to uh, people who were uh, in textile industry. So when they came all out, you know, oh, it's it's a fake, it's not real and it was a big blow up all over the news, you know, the this route is a fake, it was done back in the days trying to make it the Renaissance days and more than likely something to do with Da Vinci. But what happened was then somebody came forward and said, Oh, what, 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 we've got a piece of that and um this is not the way it is. Those pieces that you are looking at have been mixed with cotton cloth. And the cotton came from where it was stitched and then of course when it was put through the uh, uh, when it was burned like that and then it was restitched then your carbon dating would not be a correct sample so it's just really interesting that nobody wanted to rescind <laughs> what they had already been put out in the public and that was to make people believe it was a fake you didn't go back and hear once they came back right and they said, okay, everybody, you know, we've made a very bad mistake. This piece, these pieces that were cut were not true linen. There was, there was cotton mixed in them. And I want to mention that, what we mentioned earlier, the linen that Jesus was wrapped in was pure linen. There was nothing else because mixing linen with wool or cotton was a bad thing. Again, goes back to the mixing in the very beginning. He had a piece of pure linen cloth on him. So the majority of the cloth is pure linen. In a, in a herringbone kind of weave. But this particular uh-huh. area that was taken off and carbon dated had these strips of cotton in them. So, of course, it was not going to give them the right uh, carbon dating. But then you're kind of like, well, you know, when you find out and you do the research that the people who, who did that knew better, you're like, okay, why would you do that? What are you hiding? Because that gives me a uh-huh. red flag that you are hiding something from people by taking a piece of cloth that you knew had been messed with, and you choose to pick that up. Well, going back, and and I took the time to go back and look at what was it that the gene segments, you know, in the the bloodstains that were used by the Strzok Committee, you know, what did did they show? And again, that first Strzok Committee, like I say, back in the 60s and 70s, they were saying this stuff was real. There was never any question that that wasn't real blood because the DNA was on there. And so, you know, the fact that the Shroud's blood was human with both an X and Y chromosome intact, uh, they even wrote in their scientific papers that they actually identified 700 base pairs of DNA at that time, which were genetic markers, which really linked right back to the semitic genes, which would show that, you know, this this really was a a 2,000-year-old blood that produced DNA samples, and it, it definitely confirmed that the man on the shroud was, in fact, uh, of a pure Jewish lineage and, and no doubt in my mind, pure Hebraic, which would, again, uh, go right through with what the Bible says, is Jesus' blood was like that. 
So, you know, all these kinds of things you have to stop and look at um, that there have been some reason why it's been kept quiet. And I will say, again, when uh-huh. you don't want to let people know the truth yet, you keep messing with it to make it sound like it's not real, to keep it out of the limelight. Um, the thing that worries me most is that, um, you know, the the last time that it was shown, uh, one of the research guys that went over to see it said it looked gray, it looked holographic, you know, and so you're wondering did they completely remove all the blood off of that particular image. But the fact that the uh, Vatican has spent so much money to put it inside of a vacuum, you know, sealed thing so that nobody can get their hands on it and it, it, and it will maintain it, they know that it's real. And then, of course, I had the uh, chance to, to talk with a man that had actually interviewed the um, really the, the priest that was over that particular area, and he had him on tape as saying that John Paul II had told him that he was the overseer of that authentic cloth and that it was definitely, no doubt, no question that it was truly the the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, that it was the Shroud of Turin, uh, and it wow. was real. So, you know, for some reason, again, it's been kept quiet. It's not just, it's just not time to bring it forth and say it's real. But there's no doubt in my mind that they're waiting for that right moment. And so my question is, when is the right moment, and is it all going to come to pass, and why is it going to be so, so significant and how is it going to be used by the Catholic Church to to maybe prove that Jesus Christ really was real, died, rose again, and that kind of thing? And Dr. Joyce, excuse yeah. me. Uh, I think I read in your book that uh, you were part of that stirrup committee and that um, the Vatican wanted the relics back after your examination and the other physicians' examinations of uh, the Shroud of Turin to see if there was viable blood samples and what have you uh, to check to check it forensically. And so when they asked for uh, the Shroud back, that is the Vatican, when the Vatican asked for the Shroud back, uh you asked why did they want the shroud back? I think it was in 1978, and then they told you, I forget who it was, uh, but whatever official was that represented the Vatican told you that uh, they were planning to actually make a clone of Jesus Christ from the the viable blood sample that w- was on the shroud. Is that something that occurred? No, now I, I was not a part of any any time with the uh, the stirrup committee because I was still a young girl when they were doing oh, this kind of thing. Okay, uh, th- these are just uh, people who did work on the Strata Turin, and their reports is, is to the uh, particular scientists that were given like strips of that particular blood to take home and to do samples on. And some of them, the the, the Vatican knew had those blood samples, and and so when you know when. The cloning, I believe, began to be a, a significant factor because people didn't believe in cloning, but yet they, they already done some of the cloning. I mean, the scientific papers said that they had. So for some reason, right. the uh, Vatican officials began to ask those blood samples to come back, and it was very interesting because some of the uh, scientists who had those blood samples, some some strange things happened to them. Uh, and, and they died. Wow. And so, you know, you have this question oh, in your mind that they were not wanting people to have access to those blood samples, and they did. 
And the more that they had access to the blood samples, the more they could do certain things with those blood samples and be able to tell uh, even even greater details about it. And, and and when I first started talking about cloning, I had several uh, doctors that I went to to talk about cloning. And of course, at that particular time, when I'm talking about cloning, everybody thinks that's still science, you know, uh, science fiction. But uh, when I was able to do the research with people who were familiar with it and had known that these cloning capabilities going way back into the 1800s that had been done, the process was not like what people thought. If, you know, when you start thinking about you've got to map the DNA, but if you can clone something, every cell, whether it be a dead cell or a live cell, of your body is a holographic image of yourself. And so when you can take, let's say, a woman's egg, and you can take out the DNA, you scrape out the egg of the DNA of that woman, you can take that cell and put it in that egg and you electrify it so that it will start dividing. When a, when a sperm hits an egg, there's an electrification that actually starts the cells to divide and starts the process of, of, of you know, the child starting to be formed. Well, in a cloning, you've got to you've got to electrify that cell to make it start uh, doing that. But every cell that flakes off of you, every every cell that's on your skin, is all a holographic image of you. It is it is it is where you can take that and you can put it into a woman, and when she gives birth in nine months, that that child will have no connection to her, but it will be a specific. It's not even a twin. It is a duplicate. That's you know that's what cloning is. It's a duplication. Right. It's not a twin. It is a duplication of you because it's a holographic cell of you. And so you know this was very important to me uh, because uh, when I was doing this research about the shroud and being so interested in it at first, when I started thinking about the possibility of this, I was totally excited because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we can actually take this, these blood samples and we can clone this and we can bring Jesus back to life. What a marvelous thing. I mean, he can, he, you know, he can raise the dead. He can do this. He can do that. You know, mankind has come to a point that we could bring him back and we can do all this wonderful stuff that he did. And so uh-huh. I'm like really excited about the thought of this process, you know, so I'm doing more research about how that could happen and whatever. And then, uh, and I've told this story before, I was in, uh, and my little geo tracker with my grandmother, and we were going to town, and I was telling her about my research and what I was finding and about the shroud and about the, the possibility that we could really rebirth Jesus. And then all of a sudden, and I'm telling her this, and I just have this sinking feeling that just makes me feel like I could just really almost pass out. And I pulled over to the side of the road, and my grandmother looks at me, because this is the same grandmother that, you know, that I had told her about the dream when I was six years old. And uh, she says, my goodness, well, what in the world? And I said, I called her mommy. I said, oh, my gracious mommy, I know how the, he's going to do this. And, I, and she says, what? What are you talking about? And I, and I looked at her and I said, if you could clone anybody and bring them back, who would you clone? And she said her mother, because her mother had died when she was uh, young and, and didn't really get to know her. And I said, well, that I know you probably would do that. But I said, if you could bring back anybody in history, who would you bring back? And she sat there and she sat there and I said, what about Jesus? And she says, oh, wouldn't that be a, a marvelous thing? And I said, wouldn't it be a marvelous thing, but if it was in the wrong hand? And she looked at me and I said, 
I have been trying to figure out why the Bible kept saying what it was saying at the end of days. There will come a person looking like me to be prepared for that, and he will stand in the temple of God, proving himself to be God. People will worship him. And why is it that the elect could even be deceived if the days are not cut short by this Antichrist, this beast? Uh-huh. And I just bust out crying. She's like, oh, my gosh. I said, I know now what I'm dealing with because I said, Every aspect of what I've been thinking about the cloning, the spirit returns after death to the father who gave it. I said, so the body regenerated through a clone would not have the spirit because the Bible tells us it's only once for man to die. So in all the research that I had done as far as possession and looking at the Jewish golem that were created, uh, how the uh, the work of Frankenstein was right. was brought about about the golem and that you electrified to get him to come alive. I mean, I, all this stuff was just flooding my mind, and I'm going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, you just having this all this stuff is like all at one time because you've now found a foundation stone as to what could happen if you bring this body back to life and what does it mean. So. Um, you know that was the that was the awakening situation on the side of the highway around 1998, 99. You know, wow. uh, and I thought, okay, okay, I've got to do a little bit more understanding about that shroud and what all was done and how that blood is and whatever. And so, you know, there were people who were saying, well, you can't clone the blood. And then I was fortunate enough that I was at. Um, at my church one day, and this man brought in a video of Ron Wyatt and some of the archaeological things that he had found. And one of the things that he was saying that he had discovered was the Ark of the Covenant and that he had found blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So I began doing significant research on what Ron Wyatt was saying and trying to follow up with what he was saying. Was it true? And, and trying to do like double checks on with the kind of research that he'd been a part of. Well, the thing that was most important to me in all of that, he, of course, came down with cancer. And then some of the things that he told really as he was dying, I'm thinking, if he's a Christian, he is not going to meet his maker line about something like this. So when I realized that he believed he had found the Ark of the Covenant in, um, in the grotto there that was below where Jesus Christ was crucified and that the blood could have gone down, through the ground during the earthquake and gone on the Ark of the Covenant, which makes a lot of sense because that's exactly where the blood was put by the holy priest, you know, uh, when when it was in the temple was for the uh, purification of sin during that time that the, the, you know, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were such a part of the Hebrews. And so what Ron, Ron White swore by was that the blood, when he got a sample of it, when he found that, and he took it to some uh, Israeli scientists that they did not know what he had. And when he took it to them to see if the blood, you know, if it, what kind of blood it was or whatever, the thing about what they did was they reconstituted the blood by actually bringing it back alive, by spinning it, so meaning that the blood was not dead, so when you start talking about, well, you can't clone from blood and you can't do this. Well, when blood's not dead, <laughs> it's like it's alive. Right. 
then you've got a whole different ball game going on. And so once I was able to look at that research and feel like it was very real, it was very scientific, and it really did prove, uh, you know, what was going on. And, of course, I tried to put that at my website for people to look at and, and to see that that blood is very much alive. Uh, the, the interesting fact that he found out was that that blood had the, the chromosomes for the mother, but there was only one for the father. So that means like a divine spark, meaning that it's not like it's a human. So that tells wow. us that that blood that's on that Sriracharin, and I always said this, that that would mean, that would be the divine spark. That That's the philosopher's stone. That is the holy grail. That is why the, the legends of Camelot were always described around the Sriracharin as being the holy grail. And everybody thought it was like the blood, the, in other words, the cup that caught Jesus' blood. Well, that cup is that shroud that caught Jesus' blood. And those Knights uh-huh. Templar, who were very involved with keeping that cloth, were, of course, members of, became members of the Rosicrucians. And we know that they were very involved with trying to keep flesh alive and did do some things magnificently with keeping flesh alive. And, of course, uh, I show in my work that the very first tumor that was taken out of a woman was kept alive and is still alive in a Petri dish because you feed it the correct protein so you can keep flesh alive. But how do you manifest and how do you clone? They were always looking after what? how do we take something that has died and we bring it back as a child again? Well, all your Camelot Arthurian legend is about the Holy Grail, Camelot coming back, Camelot being paradise. But the thing they always said, that King Arthur would die, but he would rise again as a child. Interesting. Then I'm like, oh, that's so interesting because I've been looking for the Antichrist since I, like I say, uh, as a young person because I knew that if the end of days was coming, that Antichrist would have to be here. There had to be a false prophet and have to be all these things going on. And when I realized who had had access to this route and what they were doing and scientifically trying to prove for a long period of time, even how Hitler had wanted to get his hands on it and try, he had, he actually had the, the, uh, the spear of destiny which had pierced Jesus aside, so he had access to the blood off of that. So, you know, when you looked at his genetic experiments and how his scientists were already looking at the DNA and how to clone, and they were already cloning some stuff, and how they were looking at how to produce the pure Aryan race, and all this kind of stuff just did not come up like, uh, I think I'll, I'll think about this today. This was all a process of trying to bring about something that could rule this planet. And when I started looking at biblical scripture for what it was really saying, it was talking about in Thessalonians when Jesus said that, you know, that this thing was going to proclaim himself. He was going to be in the temple of God and proclaim himself God. Well, when I started looking at each individual word, and I would encourage people to do this, that you need to go back and look at, you know, which is the Old Testament, you need to look at the Hebrew, which is the New Testament, you need to look at the Greek. Because when I saw that John the Revelator had used a word for beast, which meant icon, in the Greek, which is not really uh-huh. a, a word like we typically would use in English, so they used the word beast. But what it was was something without a soul, and I'm wow. like an icon. And of course, people would always say, oh, it's a computer, it's a statue. And I'm like, hmm, yes, yeah. so a clone without a 
spirit in it would be walking among us like a golem, like a Frankenstein, and yet they would be acting like us and doing this stuff. And, of course, when I started doing the study on the uh, wheat and the tares and knowing that there is a lineage that was part beast and part human in the very beginning and all that manifested with all of that, I'm like, okay, what did, what was the deal with Satan? He got thrown out of heaven because he really wanted to be God. That was his thing. He wanted to be God. So in the end, right. he's wanting to be God. So, you know, he can't come looking like Obama. He can't come looking like Hitler. He's going to mm-hmm. have to come, just like the Bible says, as a Jewish person from mm-hmm. a, a Syrian connection who will have the lineage of King David that will be able to put him in a temple that says, I'm a prophet, priest, and king, with a lineage that gives him the power, with a royal lineage. He can't come like not a royal lineage and be considered a a king. And what does the Bible say about him? He's a prince. So, you know, when I started looking at all these kind of things, I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, here here we have a serpent lineage coming out of uh, the garden. And mm-hmm. they're wanting to rule the world, and they rule the kingdoms of the world. They have all the money. They have all these things that are involved with that kind of stuff. But yet, what is it that will allow somebody to say that they are God and somebody believe them? Because the, the Jewish people who are waiting for their Messiah, because they don't believe that Jesus has come yet, they're not going to believe that somebody that's not of Jewish nationality from that particular lineage could ever claim to be their Messiah. So, right. you know, when the temple burned, all the records supposedly burned with it. Well, now, Queen Victoria had capability, and, of course, we know from the Knights Templar, they went in to get all those records and things, and that's what they were looking for. They were also, like I say, had the shroud and everything else. So the Vatican was involved with that, um, and, I, and I explore that in my books as well, about how the Vatican kind of helped manipulate and form the, um, what they call the Muslim assassins and started the really the religion of Islam, uh, and, and how they taught Muhammad all of what they taught him, and, and there was a Catholic priest in, involved in all that. And, and when you see that and you see the reason behind that, then you get a bigger picture of the whole thing, like who is behind this and what are they doing and why do they want the shroud and why did they want all the relics and why did they want to... Everybody to know they're connected. The royal family is connected to King David. I mean, all these kinds of things that nobody else has access to or can prove anything different. Nobody else on this planet can prove that they've got that connection back to King David other than that royal family. Uh-huh. So when I started looking at that, I thought, well, Prince William had uh, just been born. And I began to get uh, some uh, graphic kind of artist to start aging him for me. Now you know when you take a little kid and you start saying, "I want to put a, I want to put a face on him. I want him to right. a- age. I want him to have a beard." And they would look at me like, "What?" So you know, I was already trying to say, "Let's look at the symmetrics of the face," because there was a book that came out by David Rourke was called In His Image that I had gotten at a local library where they were actually getting rid of some books. And I asked them, could I have that book uh, because they were purging the library. And David Rourke had tried to say that uh, he had been given understanding that there had been a cloning and this man named Max had cloned himself on an island in, in uh, you know, out somewhere away 
from everybody else <coughs> and that it was a duplicate of him. And I'm like, yes, okay, now you uh-huh. figure this. If you've got the money, if you've got the capability, if you've got the science, no different than the island of Dr. Moreau, you can take and go to an island somewhere, get the best scientists in the world under a black budget, and you can take all this scientific information that you've got, and you can do whatever you want to, and nobody's going to stop it. Now it's time for Jerry's Food for Thought. Now I'm going to play you an audio clip from Fritz Springmeier in which he explains human cloning. If you want to know who Fritz Springmeier is, just do your own research on Google. His first name is spelled Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z, last name Springmeier, S-P-R-I-N-G-M-E-I-E-R. And then the next clip is George Green, in which he explains synthetic humans and human cloning. And that's George, first name, G-E-O-R-G-E, last name Green, like the color. And lastly, I'm going to share with you an audio clip from the movie The Boys from Brazil, made in 1978. And that is supposedly a fictional movie about a Nazi hunter in Paraguay who discovers a sinister and bizarre plot to rekindle the Third Reich. And in it, it talks about human cloning. As many people have said before, and I'll say it again, that the Illuminati hide the truth in plain sight. So all these movies about cloning, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? It's been around since 1938, and Hitler perfected cloning. A lot of these supposedly sci-fi movies drip-feed humanity with the technology that they have now, but they illustrate it as something as a fantastical idea or imagination of the author or screenwriter or movie producer. But really, it does illustrate technology that is in existence now that the reason why they put it in a movie is to A help people to become acclimated and accustomed to ideas that most people would find reprehensible, such as human cloning and unethical, of course. And secondly, the reason why they put these different ideas like cloning in movies is so that when the final full disclosure does come out that that they've been able to clone people such as Jesus Christ from the viable blood sample from the Shroud of Turin, it's not so much of a shock to us. The, the military has been um, doing uh, further projects besides just this. Uh, DARPA has the Avatar program, and uh, that's a marine transfer technology that, that they have. And uh, one, of the, one of the people that's involved with this research is Dmitry Itzkov, and he's head of what's called the 2045 Initiative. And that group is working and they say that by 2045 they will have the ability to download consciousness into a computer. Now what I'm going to suggest to you is, is because over the many years that I've been researching the Illuminati, I, I keep coming across the proof that they're probably 30 years at least ahead of us in the technology that we know and maybe even more. So I'm going to suggest if 
If he's saying that we can do this in 45 years, I'm going to suggest that they're already able to do it. So he's working hard to make the body to be an accessory. What do I mean by that? It means your mind can be downloaded somewhere, they give you a new body, they download that consciousness in there, and then when that body wears out, they download the consciousness to the new body. The neurosurgeon who wrote that bestseller that's out there now, Proofs of Heaven, uh, who had the near-death experience, when I scanned read it, he mentioned the book, Irreducible Mind, which that book that came out in 2007 shows scientific evidence that the consciousness can be indeed separated from the body. So this isn't something theoretical, but they've proven that the conscious, consciousness can be separated from the body. And I'm going to give you some highlights that I had um, time-wise on cloning, because most of us haven't really been following it closely. In 1952, they announced that they had cloned a frog. Right? In 1970, Lord Rothschild, uh, he recommended that the United Nations have an agency to license and control human cloning. And in 1977, was the first public announcement of someone being cloned, someone who was very wealthy, but they kept the name of this person secret. And then uh, in 81, they announced mice had been cloned. And then in 97, they again announced that humans had been cloned. And then in 2002, they said 100 people had been cloned. Technically, to clone a person is no more complicated than it is to clone a cow or a pig. It's, it's, there's a few little differences in the steps, the procedures, but as far as compli uh, complications, it's just as easy. And I'm going to suggest to you that the Illuminati not only have the motive to uh, clone and to transfer consciousness, but they have the means. And if they have the motive and means, what's that mean? It means that they're doing it. Our scientists have learned how to make people. They call them synthetics. Because synthetics, when you touch their skin, it feels like uh, plastic almost. That's the latest technique. The old, the old techniques, uh, if you guys can rent a video, uh, the boys from Brazil, it gives you the exact way how our government's been making people. Really? I mean, making people meaning temporary people? No, walking, talking ones. Meaning through genetics? You're not talking about that? Well, let me tell you. Let me. Uh, the movie shows it, but I'll share it with you right now. All right. All I need to do is take two cells off of your body. Uh-huh. We give them a small electrical charge. I'm just going to act like a fertilized egg. If I got a fertilized egg, all I need is a receiver in order to make it. So they were hypnotizing women, you know, said they were being invaded by aliens. And the fetus starts growing, right? Needs food. Well, they can use cows and sheep, too. Again, a food source, that's all we need. After about 14 weeks, all of a sudden that fetus is gone because they've learned to take, that's when the fetus starts developing its own blood supply. Then they've used the pituitary hormone extract that they have which accelerates the being that grows. Now, the reason was the so-called elite are selecting on who they want to have around. But is it a clone or not? Oh, now you know we're going about cloning. Cloning techniques, uh, since 38 we've been... 1938, they've been making clone people. 
There's eight countries making clones. Okay, so... Now, now, let's go to the next step because this is the most important part. All right. If your physical reality that you have, based on this physical life that you have this dream, is made up of the experiences that is impregnated on your body and in your mind, consciously, right? Mm -hmm. Your soul memory is another thing. Since the body is very physical, and we had we just got you making a physical being in a few months for spare parts. If you go to the hospital today and get an encephalogram, what's that? That's the memory of your conscious mind. Let's download it on this being. Now we got a walking, talking duplicate that has the total memory that you have because we just took it off of your own mind. And it's more and more of that is coming on the line. I just told you, go rent the... Uh, the movie. Okay, boys from Brazil. Yeah, and you'll see the whole technique on what they they show it to you in different places, so you you can imagine what it's going on. Cloning. What if I were to tell you that I could take a scraping of skin from your finger and create another Ezra Lieberman? I would tell you not to waste your time or my finger. Anyway, that is cloning. It was first done with plants. A cutting taken from a plant and transplanted grew to be the exact duplicate of the donor plant. Now we are doing the same thing with laboratory animals. You mean you can produce an animal from itself? We take the unfertilized egg of an ovulating female and destroy all of its genes and chromosomes. We then implant the nucleus of the donor cell, which could be taken from a blood sample or even a skin scraping. That cell, with its genetic material intact, eventually becomes an embryo and is born as a living creature. Oh, Doctor, how can that be? Come along. Here we are removing the eggs of a white rabbit from the fallopian tubes. Now, you see the egg under a microscope. I've brought the point of an ordinary sewing needle into view to give an idea of size. They are that small? Most mammal eggs are about that size. Including human eggs? Yes. The next step is to destroy the egg nucleus with ultraviolet light so that none of its genetic makeup remains. Now you see an egg from a white rabbit ready to be injected with the blood cell from a black rabbit donor. With the injection effect, one of the blood cells is sucked up and then injected into the egg. After a few hours, the eggs in culture divide and are ready to be put back into the female. There they grow into embryos, which in a month's time, the normal gestation period, they will become baby rabbits. In this instance, a black litter from a white mother and their black color proves that they have been cloned from the blood cell of a black rabbit. Stop it. 
isn't it difficult to get the egg back into the female? Transferring the eggs isn't a problem. We do that all the time with laboratory animals. The really tricky part is the microsurgery. Getting the donor cell into the egg. You're lucky that one in ten survives. And this can be done with humans? If the surgical technique were precise enough. The one who is cloned. The donor. He has to be alive, doesn't he? Not necessary. Individual cells taken from a donor can be preserved indefinitely. With a sample of Mozart's blood and a woman, someone with the skill and the equipment could breed a few hundred baby Mozarts. This was Jerry's food for thought. So if you thought that you could right. live forever and you could clone yourself and continue to live and live and live in some way to put your mind back into that body, you would be doing that. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's been tried over and over and over again. So sure. when I saw that this was happening and this this when this book came out, it was told to be a true nonfiction book. Uh and it was a, a bestseller. And then the question of cloning just went nuts and so it kinda ran him underground and then he came back and said it was not a true story. Just some weird really weird things going on about that. But it mm-hmm. I knew right then because of the studies that I was doing with Hitler that this stuff had already been perfected long before this book ever came out and what was going on. But I could see that now we had Prince Charles marrying uh, Princess Diana and the connections to the pedigree that would need to be in place to be able to put a person in, you know, as king of Israel or, or whatever over that area of Jerusalem. And then I began to see the connections they had to Jerusalem and how, uh, throughout history, they have a historical record that tries to say that Joseph of Arimathea had brought uh, Mary Magdalene, that Jesus had married Mary, married Mary Magdalene, and they had had children, two boys and a girl, and that uh, lineage was considered the Merovingian bloodline, of which uh, you know the royals connect to and try to prove is a significant bloodline. Uh, and of course, I trace that bloodline, Merovingian bloodline, all back to the Egyptians and then in the serpent lineage and that kind of stuff. And that's how they're connected to all that. But the fact that they were bringing in all these extracurricular kind of things, I would say, to a lineage to try to prove something, uh-huh. you have to stop and say, okay, why are they doing that? And then, uh, as William began to grow and you began to see these things coming into play, that he looked like the Shroud of Turin. And then, you know, of course, uh, there's been documentaries uh, done on the History Channel in which you can take, and I've got those pictures there. They're, they're as cynical to what uh, he looks like. So my question was, right. if, that's, if this is the case, if we have to look at the Bible, and I want to do it from a scientific aspect, the Bible tells you that the Antichrist has to be this, 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 and this, and this. And uh, to be able to rule an area as a king or prince, you've got to have a royal lineage with a pedigree that tells you you're this, this, and this, and this, and this. Well, it's interesting that when you put the House of Stuart together with the House of Windsor, who were all Germans, you know, and best friends of Hitler, you kind of go like, hmm, isn't that a little weird? And then the connection that they had to the Rothschilds and how the Rothschilds were, con- you know, were considered Jews, but yet they were confiscated by Hitler but let go because then you start finding out there's not a Jew is not a Jew is not a Jew. There's Kazarian Jews first really which called pure Israelites 
who were pure Hebrew. Big difference. But who goes over and gets into Israel and establishes Israel? Are these Kazarians, these Rothschilds? Well, you know, they used their shield, which was uh, the, the, the pointed star, which they tried to call the Star of David. I mean, there's all this stuff involved with Hitler and the Vatican and all this stuff going on, and you're like, oh, my gosh, these are the people who had access to this route, who were involved with this route, you know, controlling this kind of stuff. And then you go, okay, let's look at all the other things that's happening along with that. We've got a pope. And, I, of course, I did the research on that as part of my uh, book. That there was prophecies by Saint uh-huh. Malachi that there would be these certain popes and there'd be a certain number of them and then each one of them was going to have certain things that was going to happen and they would come to a final pope. Well, now we've got the final Peter the Roman. I show how he meets the uh, the fulfillment of Saint Malachi's prophecy of the pope as Peter the Roman, and he's bringing all the religions together, uniting the world together under the auspices of one big umbrella to accept. Something and of course you know he's been trying to say well you don't have to you know you don't have to believe in this or you don't have to believe in that and he's just trying to bring them closer and closer together and he is really reuniting and possibly will be the person that brings together uh, the 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 peace that's needed to uh, establish a connection between uh, the love of Mary which I show in my book uh, it connects the Catholics with the Muslims. And, of course, goes back to the original thing that most Muslims and Catholics have never uh, done the research on this like I have, and, and I bring it up in my books. It's very real. It really did happen. You know, whether you want to believe it or not, it's really still there. It's still real. You know, don't, don't kill me. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just showing you that this is the, this is the case. And you need right. to know the truth. You know, you need to know the truth. It's like in our country, the blacks and whites fight all the time about the South and, 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 and the Civil War and all that kind of stuff, they don't realize that Queen Victoria <laughs> and the Jews were involved with the slave trade and what was going on with all that. You know, they wouldn't even attack the, mm-hmm. the Scottish right, big uh, 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 Albert Pike up there with all his big stuff up there in Washington, D.C. I'm like, you ought to be stomping him down. But they didn't never touch that stuff. It, it's all set up and it's all a play to keep the masses confused about the real truth. But once you right. do the research on it, and, and I'm telling you, once you do the research, then you see it as a whole different ball game of beguilement. And if you don't know that's the truth, right. then they can manipulate you with your emotions. And so that's kind of what has been going on to keep our keep us all tied up with stuff so that we don't look at what's really real, the real truth behind the matter. And so, um, you know, of course, when I started looking at this Thessalonians in, in, uh, in, the, in the Bible about God, you know, saying he's in the temple of God, proclaiming himself God, this iconic figure, and uh, it immediately hit me that the thing that Jesus told the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, you know, you're going to, you might be going to kill this man, you're not going to kill me or whatever, but I'm going to raise that temple up in three days. And they thought he meant the temple that took them 40-something years to build, and they laughed at him. He was talking about his body. And so I'm like, hmm, so when you cross-reference stuff in the Bible, that's the best way to find out if you're staying on track, is that it will always prove itself throughout those words will stay the same in the Hebrew and in the Greek. He was talking about his body. So the question mm-hmm. is, if it's a beast, and it's in an iconic statuic image, it's going to look like him. And that's why he specifically said, you're going to see Jesus here and you're going to see Jesus there. 
and that kind of thing, but know that that's not me. So he was already warning that something's going to look like him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if that's the case, the cloning could have occurred. Uh, And I think that, you know, I have a – I try to prove that Princess Diana – you know, she tried to kill herself several times. She even, you know, threw herself right. down the stairs. And she was, she was pregnant with William. I mean, she was pregnant with the next really king of England. And if she was so proud to be married to Charles and know that she was carrying the next king, why was she trying to do that? Because she realized, just like she stood on TV under, right on, I believe it was NBC with Jane Pauley, and she said, I was used as a broken chamber. A birthing chamber is what you do when you clone somebody. She called the British, you know, royals lizards. That is exactly what they are. They are their serpent lineage, and I trace that lineage all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So, you know, when she stood up, people just thought she was being mean, like you call people a rat or a, you know, a skunk or something, like you're a mean rat Uh or whatever. She was literally telling people with eyes to see and ears to hear that they were not, they were the terrors. And that she had been mm-hmm. used as a birthing chamber. And, um, you know, she wouldn't even call William, William. And in fact, uh, Charles wanted to name William Arthur. And she wouldn't do it. Oh. So she he wanted to name him King Arthur. And what did I just say earlier? The king that died and came back as a child with King Arthur. So all this process of knowing that the secret, the royals, they are they're the top of the, the echelon of the Illuminati. They are the top of the echelon of all these secret societies, the Order of the Garter. I mean, the, you just, it, it just gets, the more you research this, the more um, proof you get. And it's not a conspiracy. I mean, that's why I try to do my books and give you a bibliography and point you to the stuff so that if you don't believe me, you take what I've given you and you go back and you look this stuff up yourself and you're going to see that it's very, very real. And Dr. Joy? Yes. You know, it's interesting when people say, uh, oh, this, this one element is the smoking gun. I think with all of the evidence that, that you've talked about regarding uh, the royal family and Prince William being the, the possible cloned Antichrist, that this is not just one smoking gun, but like, dozens and dozens of smoking guns basically you know he has the pedigree he's he's come from you know the top of the illuminati pyramid uh family you know that's royal um and um and also you know princess die you know almost uh, you know uh killing uh prince william and then uh of course you were uh, had stated in another in another interview that uh prince uh Charles was reading, you know, a book of uh, occult incantation of spells. And then what, one thing that I thought was really, really interesting at another smoking gun was that during uh, Prince Charles and Di's uh, honeymoon that they stopped by the same uh, facility, uh, I guess a genetic facility or what have you, uh, that Dolly the sheep was cloned out of. So I, I would imagine, like you said in your in, in previous interviews and in your book, that since they 
stopped by uh, the cloning facility where Dolly the Sheep was cloned, that it made it look as if uh, Charles and I conceived Prince William on their own without the intervention of the uh, corrupt geneticists who who had put uh, the the cloned uh, or the, the the genetic material from the the Shroud of Turin into uh, Princess Di's womb, basically to make it look as if you know they had conceived naturally, but in reality that uh Prince William was conceived, you know, at a cloning facility uh where they they extracted uh viable uh blood samples, you know, from the shroud, like you said that you proved um into Prince Di, you know. And that was that to me was the biggest smoking gun. Well, that that's the thing is when you start saying, well, you're just going to do a conspiracy theory, when you see so many things and like I say, uh my undergraduate work and what I I thought I was going to be in my lifetime was going to be an attorney. The intent I wanted to bring to the table is look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Here's more, 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 more. So everything that I could get my hands on, I'm like, look at it, look at it. it. You can't deny that these things aren't adding up. And then when you start saying that we've got the the Pope in place, St. Malachi's prophecy of the Pope is in place as the false prophet, and he's doing exactly what the the Bible said the false prophet would do. And then you've got a person in the image of Jesus Christ walking around that really can walk in to the temple, claim himself to be God. He can go into uh, Jerusalem and be king of Jerusalem. He has the pedigree to be able and the rights to do it. He's the only person walking this earth that can do that. And then when you've got Charles that has all the uh, credentials of what they call the Red Dragon, there's your three people that the Bible has told you at the end of days will be together. And then it says when you see those three people, you're also going to see there's going to be changes in the sun, moon, stars. There's going to be earthquakes in diverse places. There's going to be unrest with um, the world. There's going to be deaths of animals and, and birds and all the fish like they're doing. And there's going to be uh, uh, husbands turned against wives and children against fathers. And, and people, doesn't, they don't love each other and it becomes a world of, of selfies. What are we living in? Right. It could not be any more <laughs> evident. I mean, the more you put the pins in the, in, you know, in this particular cloth to say real proof, proof, like you say, smoking guns, smoking guns. This is all scientific proof. It's not like you're making it up. And when it says that, it says you're going to see that these things are going to start happening like a woman in travail, faster and closer and faster. Again. And you just look. We had the first hurricane ever. And, you know, in January recently, I mean, you know, they don't come, hurricanes don't come about until summertime. You, you've had the worst tornadoes. We've had them close together, the worst winter storms. I mean, there's just all these dead fish. I mean, everything. It's just happening very fast, very close together. You know, you might have used to hear about a tornado that might tear up something, and maybe 10 years later. At Christmas time in South Georgia, we broke about four or five days with 80 degrees temperature. Well, you might hit an 80 degree back in 1970 or back in 1929 or whatever, but you didn't do it every day. And those days are getting closer and closer and closer and closer. So when you think about it, if we got all these things in place, Antichrist has got to be here because the Bible tells us he has got to be at this point in time with us for all this stuff to happen. And so far, the Bible has been spot on. So I believe that that Antichrist has to be walking, he has to be able to have pedigree, he's got to be able to prove to himself who he is, 
He can do absolutely every bit of that. And I, I tell you, right. the Catholic Church has set people up to believe that when a statue of Jesus bleeds and people get healed, they will be running over each other if he was to start touching people and healing them. And as it is, you look at uh, just him and Kate coming to, to, to our country. They treated him like a rock star. We're talking about the biggest stars right. that we consider stars in Hollywood bowing down to this man, wanting to be so much a part of him. And, and then right. you look at what the Pope and how he has got all these people, you know, and then you look at the Queen. She owns all this stuff. The, the, the British Empire is huge. So you you can't go like this couldn't be real. It, there's too many. There's too many smoking guns, right, and that's why which, I invite people. You know, if they don't believe me, read the stuff, and then I'm afraid once you read it, you're gonna have to say there's something to all this. Absolutely, Doctor Joy. Here's a question from maybe somebody who would be skeptical, and 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 what if they arrive at the conclusion? Okay, let's just say Prince William is is the cloned image of Jesus Christ, who is the Beast, um, or or the Antichrist. I get a little bit confused as to who's the Beast and who's the Antichrist. But well, let's just say a, a skeptic. You know, they they happen to say, okay, let's just say that Prince William. Is in fact, as what you say, is he's the cloned image of Jesus Christ. He's going to, you know, walk in the Holy of Holies and proclaim himself to be God and such. What's and, and he he's you know, like you said, you know, um, calling fire down from heaven and in healing people and and doing all these you know demonic signs and wonders. What if they think, well, well, the end justifies the means? I mean, if if he's healing people and everything, what's so wrong with worshiping? Prince William. It's not them. That's exactly. Christ. And that's why it says the people will marvel. Because right, exactly. he being able to do, I mean, he's already considered, like I say, the most iconic. In fact, right. they called him an iconic image in some of the uh, the uh, newspapers and things. And I was just getting just cringed because that's exactly what uh, John the Revelator called him, an icon- iconic image uh, as the beast in Revelation. So, um, the fact that uh, he is a rescue pilot, he's already saving people's lives. I mean, I go into detail about everything that he has, his name, his numbers, uh, the fact that his name, William, is W-I-L-I-M, Will I Am, and his next, his, right. his second name is Arthur, I Am, Arthur. Blasphemous. Uh, that's just too, just, just too much not to, to be able to get it. And, and the thing about it is the pineal gland, and that can be another show that we might do, the pineal gland that sits in our forehead sure. can literally be manipulated and controlled, and so your conscience can be severed. And the beast will be able to do this, and I show in my research how the final frontier of Satan is to manifest and be able to biologically control people at a distance using the pineal gland because it's like a transistor radio. It can be broadcast, and it can be uh, dumbed down, and it can be done, all these things can be done with it. And once you lock into universal consciousness, is a type of universal consciousness like I explain uh, the queen bee has over the uh, beehive. <clears throat> Then you be able to control people, and that aspect of the mind becomes like a computer. And as you are the overseer of that, then you can be able to control people without them being able to biologically control the self. And so when that happens, then the mind <coughs> becomes, like I say, it becomes severed. 
And I showed that this time, this period of time explains why the 144,000 have to be sealed in their forehead that are left uh, after the catching away uh, because if they wouldn't, they would have to go, there would be total delusion. And uh, and that's how the masses will be, they will follow because they will really believe that uh, he's the Savior. And right now, you know, with the world getting to the point that it is, everybody's looking for the Savior. And I'm afraid that right. Savior is being put right into place to play that game. Right. The real Savior is Jesus Christ. I don't know who's listening out there, the Christian or not, but the Bible says that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Heavenly Father. No man comes to God except through him. And Jesus did everything that that we need in order for us to go to heaven. He died on the cross for our sins. He sacrificed himself. He shed his pure blood. And he is the only way uh, to God. And so here, the reason why it's wrong and it's blasphemous and sinful to worship a man other than Jesus Christ who claims himself to be God is because he's not God. <laughs> uh, and the power that he's going to uh, display uh, is is going to be uh, satanic power. That's and, right. Uh, it, it, right, it, yeah, it's exactly. An, it's an image that's going to do that. And, you know, uh, we're seeing how, like, the holograms of Michael Jackson and people there in the audience that saw it at home, they were screaming and yelling just like he was alive. And I understand that Lady right. Gaga is going to pull off something with intel uh, at the Grammys in February, they're supposed to use some technology. So, yes, we're getting to the point of iconic images doing some very unique and, and uh, marvelous kinds of things. And so there's only, uh, you know, the sky's the limit when you've got plenty of money and technology behind you to, to pull off and, and, and really mesmerize and control humanity. And, and the thing about it is right. uh, when, when uh, uh, Pope Francis took over, no more than a couple of months after he became Pope, the first thing he did uh, on that Easter following that is he said that the Sprout of Turin, they had done the latest uh, research on it and had proved that it was from the time of Christ. So now wow. we've got a Pope just saying that it's from the time of Christ. So we're getting closer. We're just, everything's, you know, it's going to come on out. Uh, but it had to be at the right time when everything comes together because there's an agenda. There's a, there's a plan being followed. And I think that's the most amazing thing to me having researched this for so, so many years now, is that I see that plan and how it's been woven through history and how it's leading right to the very end, just as the Bible has promised it would. Another thing that I thought of is uh, I've seen some videos that were on, you know, like regular pop star shows and what have you, where uh, these iconic figures, you know, that are in the movie and music industry have been cloned. Uh, like, for example, I, I thought I saw something on uh, one of these uh, pop star shows, I forget which one, uh, where there was a clone of Britney Spears, a clone of Katy Perry, and a clone of uh, Heidi Klum. And uh, these were not, you know, just twins or doubles or, or people that looked like these uh, pop stars. Uh, they were an exact, like you said, duplicate of those people. And I think I might have seen maybe a clone of Angelina Jolie, and I'm not sure. I forget, but it was this interesting uh, video that I saw on YouTube, um, but it was it was actually uh, something that was shown uh, right on regular 
you know, primetime TV. So it wasn't like, you know, some guy in his underwear in his basement, you know, like, oh, like, oh, look at this rare footage. I mean, this was on regular TV, but a lot of people, because of the disinformation and uh, the matrix that we live in, you know, they see lies as truth and truth as lies. So they, they see this and they go, oh, oh, those people you know, they're just mannequins. Uh, oh, they're breathing and blinking. Okay, they're mannequins, right? Uh, and so the, so people, when they see that, they say, oh, that's very interesting how they made somebody to look exactly like, you know, the, these these different uh, uh, music or, or movie stars and what have you. I think it's going on right now, uh, cloning uh, of different people, these deep underground uh, military bases. And then um, also, like, there's a lot of information on the net with regards to that. And then also... Uh, it parallels what you said that since uh, Hitler's day and even before that in the 1800s that they started yes. cloning and then Hitler perfected it and so Vatican came along and like you said you know uh, used that technology for their uh, nefarious purposes to to bring about the Antichrist who they think should be the Messiah who is not the Messiah. Well, the biggest thing is I think you can go back and you can look at there's a twin city down in South America that the scientists that were doing the uh, genetic stuff for uh, Hitler ended up in that area. And they have got so many children down there that are twins of each other. It's absolutely beyond words that something genetically wow. was being played with. So, yeah, this has been going on a long, long, long time. And you just can't turn, you know, you just can't turn around and say, oh, well, that's just conspiracy. You might right. have said it years ago, but there there are too many smoking guns pointing at all this, and it's just funny that the Bible mentions all of these things happening at the, at the same time, and I believe that we're seeing that. Right, and just like you said, that analogy with as uh, an attorney uh, that you you studied uh, to be an attorney uh, in your undergraduate degree, and uh, the the more overwhelming evidence there is that you present to the judge, the more likelihood the judge will you know rule in your favor and say rule, yeah exactly you're right rule in your favor and say you know guilty or innocent for whatever point you're trying to prove and and you have absolutely you know proved you know your points that you said and i think beyond the shadow you know of a doubt um, but I know that there's some skeptics out there who, who scratch their head and say, well, you know, I, I've had people, you know, rebut me when I tell them, you know, the evidence, you know, from your, your books and, and interviews. I, I, they rebut me and they say, well, Prince William is just too handsome. The, the Bible says that, that Jesus Christ, you know, was not really, you know, anything to look at or what have you. Yes, Prince William is a beautiful young man, uh, but, you know, the thing is, is that, uh, the, you know, uh, Prince William, you know, he, he, I believe, you know, has, uh, you know, if, if you put, like you said, a beard on him, and there's been, you know, different graphic artists that have put a beard on him, and then also, and, you know, longer hair. He had a beard Jesus. not too long ago, you know, and we had a really picture of him with a beard, with him with a beard, which was quite amazing because it matched precisely. But, you know, right. I've had to because people will say, oh, he's good looking. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, if you put him on the back of a trash truck in New York City, how many people would think he was the best looking thing in the world? You With a beard at, and long hair. That's right. If you if you just looked at him and he was on a trash truck and he was nobody, uh, you you would never say he was the most gracious thing in the world. What you see when you look at the royals, you see the beauty of uh, their wealth. Um but if you right. took that same person and you put him on a trash truck, you'd see how many people would turn and look at him. 
Right. And then Jesus, when he, you know, was around um, 2,000 some odd years ago, he, you know, uh, he had worn like, you know, basically the, the attire of, you know, a, a carpenter and he made himself, he made himself look humble. And, um, so that's the reason why people, you know, shake their heads and say, oh, Prince William couldn't be a clone of Jesus Christ. You know, he's just what too good looking. <laughs> but the thing about it is he does match that shroud. It, and even when he stands, do. he actually holds his hands just like the shroud. But all of his pictures, he is holding his hands just like the shroud. And I've always said that the Illuminati, they give hand signs to those that see. And I've tried to encourage people to understand doublespeak in the language of uh, black magic. Because Mm -hmm. once you understand that they are doing this right in your face, but you don't see it, you 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 can't grasp. That evil is that good at, at, at beguiling you, and that, like I say, that's the reason I named my series "Beguile" because you are being beguiled by these by these serpents. They are the right, tares, right. and they are ruling the world. And that's exactly, you know, when Jesus was here, Satan took him up into the mountains and said, "Hey, you bow down to me, big boy, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world." It tells you who's running it. Satan's running it. Because Jesus specifically told Pilate, my, my, my kingdom is not of this world. So, um, you know, there's too many, like I say, there's just too much that points to this time and the things that are happening in our day that we just can't close our eyes to it. And, 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 you know, I didn't want to believe that it was like that. You know, it wasn't that I set out and said, I just want to pick somebody and, and make it be this person. I really, again, Looked at it like an attorney. Who is it? You know, who, who, who's committing this? Who's behind this? Why is it happening? You know, what, how does this play out for all of us that are really considered human and not, you know, we are the wheat, we are the pureness. And we're being corralled and confused and manipulated to such a point that we don't stop and look at what's going on and who's behind it. And I hope that people will read my work so you really know what's going on and who's behind it? Because it is a very, very evil agenda, and things are only going to get worse because they've got their surveillance stuff in place, and all that they can keep messing us up. They're going to put us under martial law. They're going to take everything you've got. I mean, the, the conscious being speared, the final frontier for the pineal gland is coming, and it's coming fast. Right. So what's our hope? Our is... hope is that in Jesus Christ is that his return, his catching away of his bride is going to happen, and we won't have to go through that. And, uh, of course, if you're one of those Jewish tribes of the 144,000, you're going to be marked, and you're going to have to go through what I call the great wrath of the tribulation, just like the is told that the Church of Laodicea, you know, and the Church of Philadelphia, and which ones will have to do, and that kind of thing. And the first will be last, and the last will be first. I, I, I describe all that in my book so that you understand about who those people are. But the biggest thing is that they have to be, actually have to be marked or uh, uh, protected, sealed in that pineal gland or they they couldn't survive during that time because nobody else is going to be able to understand it at all. The thief in the night, you know, I try to explain that, how the catching away is like that and the the Christ, you know, and the bride and that kind of stuff going all the way back to the bridegroom and what beginning paradise was like. I try to connect all that together. But it, 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 it all, it's all falling in place. And um, it, it, you just can't deny it. You just, right? You know, you might not want to, you might not like it because it, it it's going to be that. But 
the Antichrist is not going to look like Hitler. He's not going to be mean looking. He's going to be smiling. Everybody's going to think he's the most charismatic. You wouldn't follow somebody that was like that. You've got to right. be willing to follow somebody that you truly believe could save you. And uh, like I say, right. it takes a person to stand and fulfill what the Bible says. It doesn't say he's just an evil man. It says he's a man, iconic image. He, we're told he's like God, claiming himself to be God, and uh, standing in the temple of God, which is the flesh of God, uh, in an iconic image, which, you know, I, the, the first iconic image that was ever done was the painting of Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's the first icon. And uh, I, I thought of that scripture uh, while you were talking that the Antichrist will look like a lamb, but spake like a dragon. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, in, in layman's terms, he'll look like Jesus Christ, but what he says out of his mouth will be satanic. That's so right. That and it won't it won't be something like mean. It'll be it'll be like the tree of good and evil. You know, when when right. Eve went to that tree and was willing to participate with the serpent, she didn't go scared. She was very uh, overcome by that. Oh, he was like, kind of like God. He was smart like him, and he could tell him th- her things that you know that she didn't know. And you know, he twisted the word of God around. At this point, the line actually went dead. I called Dr. Joy back twice, and for whatever reason, the recorder did not record our conversation after that. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Joy Pugh, and I found what she said was very interesting and informative, and if you check out her website, drjoy.com, that's dr. J-O-Y-E dot com. You'll find a wealth of information about the Antichrist, end times, cloning, and other paranormal and supernatural related information. So, anyhow, thank you again so much for listening, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to wherever you are listening to me in the world. God bless you, and I'll be praying for you, and you'll be hearing back from me again two weeks from tonight on Wednesday, February 10th.